Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 1, and we'll continue our study through the Gospel of Mark with the cleansing of the leper, a very famous text. And I'll read Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 40, down to verse 45. And a leper came to Jesus, pleading with him, and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him, And immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in desolate areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. Our Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to understand. May this not just be a touching story of compassion between two humans, but may it be a revelation of your compassion. Please show us how we ought to respond to your word. Show us how we ought to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Show me how, show us how we are in many ways similar to this man that approached him so long ago. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, up to this point in Mark, uh, almost the whole narrative has been focused on the majestic authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we just look at chapter 1 and survey what we've seen so far, we've seen that Christ is the spiritual Baptist who immerses repentant sinners in the Holy Spirit. We've seen that he is the beloved son of God who has come into the world to overthrow the works of the devil and that he was victorious even in the wilderness as he was tempted. Uh, We see that he is the herald of heaven who preaches the gospel of God with ultimate authority. He teaches in the synagogues of Israel during his generation and people were utterly astonished Not only at how he taught as one having ultimate authority, but his power, how he could cast out demons, perform miracles, uh, indisputable evidence that he was the supreme teacher to speak to mankind. But today, the Holy Spirit wants to give us another look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to show us another dimension of the Lord. Uh, He is not just the majestic teacher, the supreme authority, that we must listen to, but that the Son of God, when he came into the world and became a man, he actually had an emotional life. The Lord Jesus Christ actually was moved by the full range of godly emotions that we experienced. And this passage is a touching example of the profound compassion of the Lord. And the point 
uh, of this text, how it intersects our lives today, is that God wants to show us how we ought to respond to that compassion. He wants us to see it, to really gaze for a good period of time at the compassion of the Lord, how deep it was, but then also consider how we ought to respond to that compassion. So let's look first, at all, first of all at the profound compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, before we, we can really understand his compassion, we have to first know something about this man that approached him. It says he was a leper and that he had leprosy. Now, leprosy was one of the most feared diseases of the ancient world. Uh, when we get a sickness, we don't immediately think, oh no, this is, this is the end of the road for me. And we, we may experience some worry, but we know, well, there's very sophisticated doctors, there's hospitals. We know many people have recovered from serious illnesses. But in the ancient world, medicine was very, very basic. And leprosy, I mean, it was incurable. It was an incurable skin disease. And because it was contagious, if you were to be diagnosed with leprosy, it was an instant sentence to a life of complete isolation. If you had gone to, went to the priest, because that's what they had to do in Israel, if you saw a, a patch on your skin and it started to grow, you were required by the law of Moses to come to the priest so he could inspect you. And if the priest were to sit, look at you and say, this is leprosy, your heart would just sink. You would know this is the end. This is the end for me. Uh, it was a sentence of slow death as the disease slowly ate away at the flesh of the patient, of the victim. As the disease progressed, it would destroy the person's ability to sense pain. And so even if you would, would look up leprosy today, it's called Hansen's disease today, uh, you would see leper colonies in Africa and other third world countries. Uh, and the people would, would have missing fingers and toes, sometimes whole hands or feet missing. Because the, the ability to sense pain would be totally destroyed in parts of the body and the extremities. And so the person would, would rub and itch and, you know, they would cook, but they wouldn't be able to sense the heat. And so they damage their fingers and their hands, uh, their feet over time, their, their face. You know, so if we have, a, we have bug bites, we itch, but at some point our body tells us that's, that's too much. We're damaging ourselves now. Well, a leper would not have that warning, that signal. And so lepers, it wouldn't just be the disease that are eating, would eat away at their flesh. It would also be that lack of the ability to sense pain. And so a leper would be a very pitiful sight. I mean, this man may not have even had toes or fingers. His face may have been severely deformed. The Bible says this disease would have appeared white like snow. And the, the, the flesh would be sunken below the skin and would be raw, have a raw appearance. It would give off a very foul odor with open sores and wounds. Uh, all these factors amounted to a lifestyle of complete isolation. The leper could never earn his, his own living. He would be a beggar for life. Uh, he could never marry. And if he was married, he'd likely not be able to live with his wife and children. Uh, he could never have children. He could never worship with God's people. He was considered unclean. 
So if you were a leper, you, could, you were forbidden from visiting the temple. Uh, you were forbidden from attending church, the equivalent in that time. The leper had no future. The leper was the epitome of a hopeless wretch and a walking horror in that society. If you were, if you were back then, you saw a leper, you would run in the other direction because you don't want to become like that. And so that's how people would have responded to this man, with horror, keep as far away as possible from him. Listen to what the law of Moses said about lepers. It says, as for the leper, this is Leviticus 13, as for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered. He shall cover his mustache and call out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection, he is unclean. He shall live alone. His place of habitation shall be outside the camp. So not only would he have to be isolated, he was actually commanded to look as disheveled as possible. He was actually told, look like you're dangerous. Have your hair loose and unkept. Uh, have your clothes torn. If someone gets too close to you, yell out and warn them, unclean, unclean. His whole person would be unclean. This, and this is not just a picture of Christ's compassion on a man with a disease. If we, do, we were to look at the different places where leprosy and this idea of uncleanness are used and mentioned in the Bible, we'd see that uncleanness and leprosy are metaphors for sin. Uh, we'll turn to Isaiah 64. There's a few times in Isaiah where uh, this comparison is made. One would be the famous text in Isaiah 6. But uh, let's look at the second one that I found in Isaiah 64. Where we are, the leper, we are actually compared to someone that is unclean. Including someone with leprosy. Isaiah is here lamenting at the apostasy of the Jewish nation. And I'll start reading in verse 1, chapter 64, where he's pleading with God to show mercy to a disobedient people. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things at which we did not hope, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from ancient times they have not heard or given ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you, who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you, in your ways. And so there he's remembering the great acts of deliverance God has accomplished for his people in the past. He's remembering God splitting the waters of the Red Sea, delivering the people. He's remembering God descending on Mount Sinai in fire and speaking to them and inviting them into a covenant special relationship with him. Things that no other God, supposed so-called God, has ever done in the history of the world. This God has done. Promise to hear them, promise to save them when they call upon him. But then notice how he continues. He says, Behold, you were angry. Indeed, we have sinned. 
We have continued in them a long time, and shall we be saved? And then notice verse 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, carry us away. So God is standing there willing to hear the one who rejoices and does righteousness. But Isaiah is lamenting. There's no one here that does that anymore. We've all turned aside from you. We've all turned aside from God. We have become like the lepers mentioned in Leviticus 13 and 14. Our spiritual condition, uh, the, the, the most appropriate analogy and picture of our spiritual condition is someone that is unclean from head to toe before God. The idea of uncleanness refers to someone that is completely unfit to live with God. In the Old Testament, a number of things could make you unclean, and it was not necessarily sinful to become unclean. So a leper, it wasn't a sin to contract leprosy, of course. Uh, But you could become unclean by touching a dead body, Maybe a relative died and you were involved in the burial. You would be unclean for a period of time. And for as long as you were in a condition of uncleanness, you were strictly forbidden from touching anything holy. You could not offer sacrifices. You could not gather with the congregation for worship. A priest especially, he dare not enter the tabernacle of the Lord in a condition of uncleanness. God said the the punishment for such a presumption upon his holiness would be death. Very severe. Very severe. Like leprosy, sin pollutes the whole body, the whole person. And God gave the Jews all these rituals and many of these laws that appear strange to us to teach them spiritual realities. And so what was he teaching through these laws about uncleanness and not letting people with infectious diseases to gather for worship. I mean, he was teaching them a lesson that you had to be completely pure to approach God. And if you weren't pure, then you could approach him, but blood needed to be spilled for your sin. We, ca- we cannot approach God in our sin. We cannot approach God with the slightest blemish upon us, and even our so-called small sins must be covered with atonement, That's what God was teaching the Jews. But Isaiah says that all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. I mean, the Jews, if we were to to look at the the state of the Jewish nation when Isaiah was writing this, we would probably not see, uh, you know, a nation of complete mayhem. Uh, We would see idolatry, to be sure, but we would see people that maybe are doing good works, They're still giving money to the temple. They're still offering sacrifices. They're still dressing up in religious garb and saying long prayers. They're doing things that on the outward, uh, on the external, appear good, appear righteous. But what does Isaiah say? All, all, every one of our righteous deeds is like a filthy garment like a putrid, polluted, repulsive garment. Imagine 
that you went to a world-class restaurant expecting a world-class experience. You know, it was a very fancy restaurant, very expensive, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity with someone you love. And as you're waiting for the meal, the server comes and places your dish on the table. And the food looks great. It looks like a wonderful meal. But then you look over and you notice the hand that has just served you. The flesh on the hand is white and raw. Pus is oozing from the sores. Fingers are missing. Flakes of skin fall into your plate. The clothing is dripping with scum. How would you respond to that? You would freak out. You would probably scream, especially the ladies. You would scream and run as fast as you can out of that restaurant. That's you. That's you serving God in yourself without a mediator. Your good works without Christ, without being sanctified through the priesthood of Christ, they are even more repulsive than that, as comical as that may seem to you. Our good deeds without Christ, without his blood covering us and cleansing us, are completely repulsive to God. If we were to enter heaven, if we could do such a thing on our own, in our sin, this would, that would be the reaction of the angels in heaven to us. They say, what is this man? What is this woman? What is this child doing here? This is a place of spotless purity. This is a place of God's searing holiness. We cannot approach God because of our good works. Our good works are filthy. Why? Because they proceed from a corrupt nature. It's like the leper trying to serve someone a wonderful meal. The person, the pollution of the person corrupts the entire thing. And so now we can appreciate the narrative before us. Uh, we, are in, we are more similar to this man than we may have first thought. The Bible says that our sinful condition is compared to the condition of leprosy, one of the most repulsive things you could see or experience in the ancient world. If we go back to Mark, it says a leper came to him. Uh, there is two parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke that describe the same situation. Um, and Luke tells us the man was actually full of leprosy. So this was not a mild case. This man was covered head to toe in leprosy. Covered head to toe in leprosy. Uh, we don't know his specific condition, but he obviously had to be very desperate to approach Christ. He wasn't supposed to do this. So he was breaking protocol, approaching Christ. He was supposed to stay far away from him. Uh, on windy days, some, some of the Jews would say you have to be at least 100, over 100 feet away from other healthy people. And so he was very desperate to come to Christ like this. And we don't know. He could have been in the deep pit of depression, ready to take his own life. He may have just contracted leprosy shortly before that and said goodbye to his wife and children and mothers and mother and father and, and all of that. So we don't know. But he was a truly desperate man. He approached Christ with deep humility. Notice he said, it says he pled with him. He was pleading with him and fell on his knees before him. 
and said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So he doesn't demand anything from Christ. He doesn't demand anything from him. He simply appeals to his sheer mercy and says, if you are willing, I know you're able, but if you are willing, I know that you can make me clean. And he addresses the Lord like this. If we are in fact like him, then we should expect to speak to the Lord in a similar way occasionally, don't you think? I mean, if our, sinf- our sinful condition before God is really as dramatic as leprosy, or at least the closest thing we can compare it to, then we ought to come to the Lord like this, shouldn't we? Uh, do we speak to the Lord like this? Is our face ever in the dust as we pray to God? Do we speak to him presuming on him, knowing, well, I know you're obligated to bless me, and so I'm coming again for my daily blessing? Or do we really speak to him as if our eternal happiness or misery is hanging simply on his mercy, on his mercy for us? We ought to speak to him like that. Notice the profound compassion of the Lord. Notice what he how he responds. It says, he was moved with compassion and he stretched out his hand and touched him and he said, I am willing, be cleansed. Notice that before Christ did anything, the Holy Spirit and Mark, who the Holy Spirit inspired to write these words, gives us a window into the internal emotional life and movements of Christ. It says that Christ looked at this man with human eyes and something happened inside of him, inside of his human soul. Remember who we are, we're looking at here. We're not just looking at a good man. We're not just looking at a a good teacher. We're looking at the creator. We're looking at what happened when the creator entered into our world. And became a man and looked at the misery of this world with real eyes. That heard the desperate pleas of people with human ears. Not a distant God far off in some other galaxy. No, God drawing near to us. Looking for himself probably just a few feet away from this man's misery. What happened? What happens when the creator does this and beholds the misery of the human race with human eyes. It says that he was moved with compassion. Uh, This term is very strong. It refers to the the seat of the emotions, the viscera or the bowels. If you have an older translation, it may even say that. The, The depths of his soul were overturned and moved. His heart broke. His heart bled so much that it created tears in his eyes if not on this occasion, on many other occasions, it says that Jesus wept, the verse every child ought to be able to recite, but a very touching verse. Notice that he was also a perfect man. And so it was not just a sappy, sentimental, passing compassion. It was a perfect soul. It was a perfect man looking at misery and responding. 
When you feel compassion for someone, your compassion will correspond to how much you love the person. So if you see on TV or on the internet some desperate case, maybe on another side of the world, a child who's sick or dying or, or people in poverty, your heart may be moved to compassion, but it will be somewhat limited because of you are just, there's a certain amount of distance between you. Uh, you are also sinful. You still have sinful tendencies, and so we all are not as compassionate as we should be. We all tend to be hard-hearted, cold, distant, not being moved as much as we really should be by the plight of those around us. But the Lord was perfect. He lived his, his entire life for other people. And so when he saw this man, he experienced compassion that exceeded anything that we, we will ever experience. Uh, I know of a situation where a young mother has a sick child, and ever since the child was born, that little child has been in and out of the hospital, going through operations, having tubes down his throat, being on the brink of death, coming back from the brink of death, back on the brink of death. I mean, think of the compassion that mother feels for her child. Think of how she must weep at the bedside of her little boy. But even far more than that is the compassion of Christ. Uh, Christ is not just a cold teacher, a cold savior. He was driven to his work. He was driven to die for our sin because he has real compassion for us, real compassion for our misery. And we know this. We know that it was a profound compassion because of what he did. Notice he does not heal him first. What does he do first? In verse 41, moved with compassion, what, what did he do first? He stretched out his hand and touched the man. Imagine the look of horror on the disciples' faces that were looking at this. What are you doing? You're not supposed to touch the leper. You are supposed to be the supreme teacher of the law. You are supposed to be perfect and spotless and pure. You can't put yourself in a condition of ceremonial uncleanness like that. But Jesus stretched out his hand. He identified with the man. He touched the man, maybe even on his skin, as an expression of his compassion. And often that is an expression of compassion, is touch, physical touch. Sometimes that is, it often is appropriate when someone is suffering. And Jesus, he could have just spoken the word, as he did on other occasions, but many times he did touch people as he healed them to express his compassion. And then he speaks the words. He says, I am willing, be cleansed. Acknowledging that the leper had spoken to him appropriately. He acknowledged, yeah, that's right. I, you, you don't deserve anything from me. I'm not obligated to do anything for you. But I am here. And I do see your misery. And I am moved by your misery. And I am willing. I am willing to freely cleanse you. Apart from anything you've done for me or ever will do. I am willing to be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. 
in that moment, in that instant, that man's entire life reversed. His loss of his family, if he had a family, his loss of his work, if he had work, uh, all of that came rushing back in that one moment as his hair was restored, his face, his disfigured face was restored, his hands and feet maybe even grew back, fingers and, and hands. He was probably ecstatic. He was probably leaping for joy. In a moment, Jesus gave this man a new life, just like he gives us all a new life when he saves us. But notice how he called him to respond. So we could just end there. And what a sweet picture that would be. The compassion of the Lord on the leper. The compassion of the Lord for sinners. End with an evangelistic appeal, and that's the end. But actually, there's more to the story. That's only half of the story. We haven't even covered half of it yet. Notice in verse 43, Jesus shifts quite dramatically. It says he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away with instructions. So we've seen, first of all, the profound compassion of the Lord, verses 40 to 42. But now we need to look at what is the expected response. What does Jesus say to someone that has just experienced his profound compassion? Jesus leans in and he sternly warns the man. And we'll see that he demands worshipful obedience from those whom he heals, whether it's from a physical condition or the spiritual sickness of sin. So let's look at this word. He sternly warned him. It's a very strong word. Uh, the word is also used, do you remember, in the, during the Passion Week when uh, the woman came to anoint Jesus with the expensive perfume? Remember that story? How did the disciples respond? They said, well, do, what are you doing? We could have, you know, Judas, he said, what are you doing? We could have sold this and given it to the poor. You know, wink, wink, wink. Um, one of the gospel writers uses this word and it's translated to scold. So they were scolding the woman. What are you doing? This is a total waste. Why are you wasting this on the, lo- on the Lord? We could use this money. It means to issue a severe warning with a harsh tone. To issue a severe warning with a harsh tone. Um... Why did Jesus speak this way to the man? Why didn't he say, may the Lord bless you, go in peace. I love you. Why did he warn him severely? Well, two reasons that I've found after studying this. One is that Christ was eager to continue with his mission. So remember, the crowds are are just surrounding him and swarming him. And it's so much that he, he can hardly do anything. It's hard enough to, to enter a city and to teach because there's this frenzy that's, that's begun as the whole region around him has become aware of his healing power. And again, just think of if someone arrived in Orland today that could actually heal any disease of anything, every private jet in the whole world would be here before the end of the day. Everyone in California would be here by the end of the day. And so this is what was happening in the ministry of Christ. 
And as we saw last week, Christ's priority was to preach the gospel. He wasn't going to run around being a faith healer, working up people's excitement just for, because of healing. That was subordinate to his major purpose of preaching the gospel, because that addresses the major issue of humanity, right? So if this man were to run around yelling and screaming about what Christ had done for him, it would further endanger Christ's ability to continue his preaching ministry. He wanted to visit every town and city in Galilee. And because this man actually disobeyed these instructions, Jesus told him, see that you say nothing to anyone in a stern tone. This man actually disobeyed that. (laughs) In verse 45, isn't that amazing? This man whose life had just been transformed, this man who had just been given a new life, a second chance, the first thing he does is disobey the man that healed him. And he did contribute and frustrate Jesus's ministry. It says Jesus could no longer enter a city. He couldn't even enter a town maybe for weeks or months after this. He had to hang out in the desert and wait for the frenzy to subside. So Jesus is sternly warning this man, saying, look, if you run around, I know you're excited, but you please keep this quiet. I, I just showed compassion on you. I didn't, I didn't do this miracle to, to get famous. It was just from my mercy. So please keep this quiet, at least for now. Second, Christ was zealous for the law. So he not only tells the man to keep quiet, but notice what he also tells him to do. He says, he quotes Leviticus chapter 14. And he says, hey, remember Leviticus 14? When a leper is cleansed, or when he thinks he has been cleansed or healed from his d- disease, he must go to the priest, right, where, where God is dwelling in the, in the wilderness. That would have been the tabernacle, but here it would be the temple in Jerusalem. And there were actually sacrifices that the leper had to make, and there was procedures to go through to make sure that he was actually cleansed. And so we won't go through all the, the instructions there, but the man would was require, required to offer sacrifices. If he had the means, he had to offer three lambs, the three sacrifices, uh, animal sacrifices, and the priest had to uh, sprinkle him with blood and oil, and there's, there's uh, quite a lot that needed to take place there. But all that, it was not just this, this uh, rote ritual. Uh, that was to be an expression of worship and thanksgiving. So the leper... God told the leper who was healed to come to the temple and to worship. The first thing you do when you are healed from your disease is to come and worship before the Lord and to offer to him sacrifices of thanksgiving, to acknowledge his grace and his mercy in your life. So Jesus, he was not anti-law. Some, some people think the law is it's, it's done away with. It's, it's no more. We, we're just in the age of grace, free grace. Uh, Jesus forgives everybody. Uh, The law really is an old concept, and it's restrictive and oppressive. Jesus was not anti-law. He was not anti-law. I mean, we are still reading, all these accounts that we're reading up until the death and resurrection of Christ are occurring under the old covenant. So as you read the gospels, you have to keep that in mind. We're not yet in the church age. We're reading about these things that were this law was still in effect. The law of Moses was still in effect. These people had to follow those laws. Christ upheld the law. 
in its entirety. And he encouraged, he exhorted, he commanded other people to do the same as well. So what did he say to this man? He said, you have just been, you have just experienced the profound compassion of God, the profound compassion of Christ. And now what should be your first response to go and worship the Lord according to the Lord's instructions and actually sacrifice to the Lord? This tells us, again, if we are anything like this man in our condition, a spiritual leprosy, that it's fair to conclude that the Lord will sometimes take this tone with us. Some of us are, are a bit allergic to any sort of strong speech. We equate a stern warning or any example of harshness as ungodly. It's ungodly. God would never speak to people like that. Christ, again, he sternly warned this man. I mean, he did not sin as he spoke to this man. He was not, you know, yelling at him in anger, but he was looking him in the eyes and he was saying, listen, I know you're excited. Listen to me. Are you listening? This is what I'm commanding you to do. Uh, Can you imagine Jesus strictly charging you to do something? Or when you imagine him speaking, is it always like this still, soft, kind of effeminate whisper? (laughs) Or is it a strong leader, the Lord, God in the flesh, speaking to his people? He, I mean, both voices, he speaks gently, he's meek and lowly, yes, but he, ha- he is also a lion. He's also compared to a lion. And even his disciples, he sometimes had to address them in severe ways. Can you imagine the Lord charging you to forgive one another or charging you to lay down your life for others? Is that how you hear his call of discipleship? Now look here. You have just been washed by my blood I have just shed my blood for you. I've just given you my spirit. I've just given you eternal hope. Uh, You have the hope of eternal life awaiting you beyond this life. Now listen, your life is to be a life of continual sacrifice. You are to live your life for the rest of your days here as a offering, as a sacrifice being poured out in love to God and for other people. You are no longer your own person. You are now my slave. You are now the slave of God. And I command you to live in this way. That is who we serve. That is who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He has a law. We are not under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ, as Paul will say in his epistles. And this is sometimes how the Lord speaks to us in his word. And so what have we learned today? Well, We have come face to face with possibly the most touching example of the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's worth asking the question, have we really discovered the compassion of the Lord? Have we really discovered the compassion of the Lord on us as individuals? Or is Jesus a distant religious figure? He's a distant religious figure that we serve and occasionally think about. Or is he... Or if we we had a similar experience like this leper, where we've come to him, begged him to have mercy on us, put our face in the dust, at least 
figuratively speaking, and appealed to his sheer mercy and said, I don't deserve anything but judgment. I deserve nothing but judgment. But I know that you are merciful. People have told me that you are merciful. I know that you are touched by my plight. I know that you're the same today as you were 2,000 years ago, as your heart was moved by the misery of that leper and appealed to him for mercy. And so if you have not done that, uh, there is really no other priority in your life. Everything that you could do in this life, it means and amounts to nothing. If you have not experienced the compassion of the Lord, if you have not come to him for salvation from your sin, But second of all, to those of us who do follow Christ, we've learned that we must listen not only to the gentle words of comfort of the Lord, but also to his stern warnings. There are stern warnings in the Bible. If your right hand makes you stumble, what do you do? Play with with it? Play with sin? Play games with God? No, you cut it off. You cut it off. And there's many other sayings like that that we are tempted sometimes to neglect. But this is how he speaks to us. He strictly charges us. We are commissioned by the Lord to serve him. Our life is to be a a continual response of this compassion that he has lavished on us. We are slaves of God. True, we are beloved children. God loves us. That's true. All that is true. God loves us. Christ has compassion on us. But it's both and, not either or. Christ has a law. He's zealous for the law. And that's his will for our lives. If we have tasted of his mercy, we ought to go now and be committed to obeying his commandments. And not offering sacrifices in the temple, we can't do such a thing. And God doesn't ask us to, but there are other sacrifices that we offer under the new covenant. The greatest of which is love, sacrificial love. So if you, if you want to respond to the Lord for the compassion he showed on you, focus on, on that, on living a life of continual self-sacrificial love as you await the hope of eternal life. And that's what God wants us to understand this morning. Our Father, we thank you for the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it were not for, for your compassion, Father, Son, and Spirit, we would be utterly hopeless. And even those of us who are believers, who, who understand the gospel, we are frequently struck by our own sinfulness and failures. And so we come to you again. We come to you every day. And may we all come to you every day like this man did in a similar spirit, broken over our sin, but also so confident in your willingness and in your eagerness to receive us back. We pray that anyone here who does not know the Lord may come to him and find salvation from sin. We pray that we would not stray from the commands of Christ or presume upon his grace. We pray that we would learn from this negative example of the leper, that we would not only rejoice at what you've done for us, but also listen to listen intently to your words. We pray that you would be gracious to us, and that you would enable us to do this for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen.